um, one of my, I think it was like fourth grade or fifth grade. Like my, my teacher told my parents, is like, he speaks like he's from a different era. <laughs> Science experiment. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blabcurts, my name is Amit Siriki. So in this episode, I sat down and talked to my friend John Solomon. He's an incredibly interesting guy. Uh, he's got a degree in music. He has a degree in German. He has, uh, has served as a soldier uh, for the US Army in Afghanistan. So he's been to my home country and we've had a, <laughs> we had a conversation about that. Uh, He's an he's he's an intense dude, and I think that intensity has um, is a result of his experience in the military. Uh, very few people have actually responded the way he responded when I asked them what their f- deepest fears were, and he said that it's mediocrity, being the same as everyone else, and being average. So, uh, very fascinating dude. We talked about uh, the Green Revolution, the Green Revolution, that that movement in the early twentieth century to uh, determine how we can better produce food to feed humanity. We talked about that. His experience in the military, and amongst other stuff. I, I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Um, also, want to say that I want you guys to go online, uh, go on Facebook, and like our page. Give us a rating. Give us some comments. That's going to be very important for us to spread this podcast. You can do that on iTunes. Uh, interact with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and we're always happy to hear for you, from you guys and we want more interaction from you guys in saying that I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode I really enjoyed my conversation with John here you go I guess what really in- begins to inform my experience in life is that I've moved a lot I've lived in so many places and I, in fact I've never lived in one spot longer than two years my whole life um, and it's great being a new kid perpetually <laughs> why? <laughs> um well, in the beginning, um, mostly like my parents, I was a, I was not a military brat. I was a government brat, which is the same thing, um, more or less. Uh, so my dad would follow the government jobs. He worked for Department of Agriculture in Washington D.C. and then, um, and then he uh, he switched over to other jobs doing consulting. So he'd be the the in between guy for. Um, basically government and private industries and then it was always chasing like the next thing and the next thing and that meant just constantly moving um, and didn't make it any easier in my uh, adult life when um, after I I finished a double degree program at Boise State University in uh, German and music Wow! and that was double useless because <laughs> um, oh I remember sitting in <laughs> in class, uh, taking notes in my, you know, my final semester German class and the stock market ticker was going by and it's like, oh no. <laughs> and uh, yeah, sure enough, 
two degrees in the arts in in a recession means uh, you can't get a job waiting tables. No. So how long ago was this? This was um, yeah. I finished my program. Programs, plural, uh, in 2008. Oh, right in the middle of the financial crisis. Right as it started. Right. So yeah. In the um, there's nothing really so so good for your ego as as finishing your degrees, and then in the same week getting a letter from the schools you want to go on to saying sorry we don't have any scholarship money, oh. and then the Department of Education saying sorry we don't have any more loans for you. Oh. And um, the way it works in the U.S. is. Um, if you have federal loans, it's not like here where you repay after you make a certain amount of money. It's you repay starting six months from the day you're done. Wow. Yeah. So the incentive is really high to get a job very quickly. That's so. I I heard this from a, a podcast that I was listening to. Supposedly, um, to someone like Donald Trump can. Um, oh, that guy. Claim <laughs> it's one of your people, oh. man. <laughs> so someone like him can claim bankruptcy, and he doesn't have to pay off any of his debts because he's a he's bankrupt. But but apparently, if you have student loans, you still got to pay those student off. Student loans are never forgiven in bankruptcy. Wow, never. Isn't that messed up? It is very messed up, and it goes into the whole. That's a whole podcast in itself of the American higher education system and how it's being priced out of accessibility and. Um, yeah, I've had I've had many many friends in the states who uh, are you know it's it's a catch twenty two of these things. You have to have a degree to get ahead in life and actually you know make something and make some money so you can have health care and free time and disposable income and buy a car or whatever you need to do. But getting a degree means you have so much debt that you cannot have free time or go on a holiday or buy a car or start a family. Right, it's ridiculous. They, um, they, it's like they put the chains on your ankle, just mm-hmm. enslave you into the system that's been set up for you, and there's no way for you to escape. Exactly. And um, I was so surprised when I came here to Western Sydney. It was the first time I had ever spent less than $400 a semester on books. Well, is that one of the reasons why you decided to come to Australia? Uh, no, actually. It's a... Oh, God, another funny story. So... I um, I was studying tropical plant and soil science at uh, the University of Hawaii, and skip a bunch of steps, uh, got engaged. My partner's a Kiwi who got a job here in Sydney. So my choice was, well, I can spend the first year before the wedding living apart, and that would be disastrous. Right. Or I could just move to Sydney because, um, you know, I can still finish the degree. School is school. Right. Ah, okay, so did you continue your studies from Hawaii to here? Uh, yes, yes. I uh, was able to transfer over some, though not all, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, uh, of my classes. So I just, I, uh, just kept right along. Um, slightly different course. Uh, there it was more focused on, on definitely like tropical horticulture, local agricultural um, industries and issues. Um, here, the program, uh, being brand new, has kind of shaped itself to not only cover issues about um, agriculture in general, agriculture in Australia, but also forward thinking. So now we're looking at what do we need to do in the future, um, especially in terms of uh, the environment, uh, the needs of um, like the local Sydney area, New South Wales, the country, the world, and kind of figuring out what our place is in that and what our responsibilities are. Right. as agricultural scientists. So would you say that um, the program over here is a bit more ex- extensive than what's being offered at Hawaii? Th- 
well, apples and oranges. Apples and oranges, like <laughs> apples and oranges. It 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 depends. There, it was it was very very heavily um, science based, but it, it was uh, it was being taught by uh, the faculty who they're kind of like the the first students or even members of the the green revolution that happened in the in the mid uh, early to mid nineteen uh, hundreds. Green Revolution. The Green Revolution. Okay, so let's uh, let's backtrack. So um, in the early, yeah, early early to mid nineteen hundreds, uh, there was a need recognized by a lot of these agricultural scientists that um, in order to in order to really progress humans human population human civilization, it came down to first food and access to food, uh, both in quantity and quality, and. Uh, so what, what they started is with a group of scientists in the U.S. who started just doing, it's really kind of just black and white science, like what happens if this thing, so they were testing all the staples, um, corn, rice, wheat, they were finding, um, you know, the best practices, they were doing the really hard ground, uh, you know, groundwork on, you know, what are the nutrient requirements, what kind of soil does it need, what kind of water does it need. They traveled all over the world to um, find innovations in crops that were happening in other places. So, uh, for example, I believe it was from Japan, they found they had a good uh, set of genetics in their in their uh, crops that uh, it stunted wheat. So wheat, when it grows in the wild, um, would actually be above your head. And the problem with that is as the kernels fill in, it tips over and the kernels get lodged in the in the soil or the wet it'll, it'll be wet it's damaged it's not very good but these shortened ones now you know they only come up to your knee these days um a sturdier stalk mm. that doesn't blow over in the wind uh doesn't lodge in the ground like that so that was a huge innovation mm. and they incorporate that into you know other wheat stalks around the world or uh, a lot of work for example was also done in mexico with corn trying to uh, figure out what the problems were there. Why aren't they um, as successful as their counterparts in the U.S.? A lot of places have a similar climate, similar elevation. So they were they did massive amounts of research in all areas, not just on the plants themselves, but also nutrient requirements, um, soil studies, what mm-hmm. makes it work, elevation studies, infrastructure even. We don't even tend not to think about infrastructure as being key to where our food comes from, but without roads and electricity and irrigation systems, a lot of the food we have just couldn't be grown. Sure, even without petroleum to mm-hmm. make fertilizer, to make mm-hmm. all the things, yeah. That's interesting. So this green so this green revolution um, started because there was a need to better, uh, or there was a need to make food more efficient or making food, the processes, making it more efficient so that we can feed people. Exactly. And was this localized primarily in America or specifically to Hawaii? Um, well, on continental U.S., uh, we'd call it the mainland. Mm. Um, primarily there and, and uh, in Europe. And the idea was, as they learned, they then spread it out. Um, uh, one of the, the key uh, researchers in that, gru- in that group, Norman Burlog, who unfortunately just in the last 10 years passed away, uh, he's written extensively about it. He actually won the Nobel Peace Prize because his work um, is credited with saving over a billion lives from starvation. Really? Like, this is the level of work they're doing. It's quite amazing. And most people have never heard of him. Yeah. What did he do? Uh, he was basically the lead researcher on a lot of these, uh, a lot of these projects. Right. Or one of, the, one of the, yeah, the first leaders in it. I don't remember his 
biography exactly, but he's basically the guy when we talk about um, the Green Revolution and a massive, uh, the massive increase in knowledge in agriculture in the 20th century. Right. It's, uh, it's all about him. Oh, that's interesting. So, you, you mentioned the, the Nobel Prize. Have you heard of, is it Fritz Haber? The, the guy who came up with the chemical process that enabled um, him to collect or to, to collect nitrogen from the atmosphere mm-hmm. and turn it into, uh, I think, ammonia, I yeah, believe, yeah. Atmospheric nitrogen to uh, organic nitrogen. Exactly. Yeah. He, he's one of those guys that, like, apparently 75% of the carbon that we, um, or the nitrogen um, that we consume comes from his process yes. so he's the one that revolutionized um a food industry agriculture because he's the one that came up with a process because before that i think they used to use like ba- bat feces you know cow manure for mm-hmm. fertilizer but this guy just figured out okay this is how we can get nitrogen in our plants exactly um that's kind of where the the sort of like i call it like the black and white uh plant science exists there was understanding that plants need X amount of nitrogen mm. at different stages, um, and then the other two are phosphorus and, and potassium. Um, so they, they also found that a lot of these um, the traditional fertilizers, so they uh, the researchers found that plants need a certain amount of of nitrogen in order to grow. A lot of them need like a little finishing push of nitrogen to fill out whatever their their fruit or grain is at the end, um, and they found that. The reason that we switch to synthetic fertilizers for uh, for most agriculture is that um, purity and readily available. A lot mm. of these traditional uh, manures, green waste, those kind of things, those are very good, but they're what we call low availability, um, low availability, low concentration. That's right. right. So they have little bits, and it takes a long time to break it down so that the plants can actually get at it. Um, so yeah, it's that's interesting. That's it's it's. I could be wrong about this, but I remember hearing this on the podcast. Supposedly, the the British they, they would fight over. I think there was there was a battle or a war uh, involving bat feces mm. <laughs> because it was used as a form of fertilizer. This is back in the days. Yeah, this sounds like some sort of absurd empire thing yeah. to do. <laughs> like, like, oh, bat shit! Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, bat shit, crazy. <laughs> That's probably where it comes That's from. That's probably yeah. <laughs> But actually, you know, if you get bat shit on you, it will kill you. Like yeah. there's, there was a scientist who wanted to go and study like bats. And so he went to some cave in Africa and he didn't realize like how many bats were in there. So as he went in there, he spooked them and like thousands, hundreds of thousands of bats just swarmed out. All of them just shitting on him. God. This dude started hemorrhaging from his eyes. He got so sick. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, yeah. This is why I work with plants. Plants don't do that. Plants don't move. They don't scream at you. No, they no, don't. Nonsense. No, they don't scream when you eat them as well. So that's no, good. not that we can hear. No. <laughs> um, what uh, what I don't know drove me into science is that I had this mental capacity that wasn't being expressed in any social setting, and uh, and so my refuge was uh, like the family collection of National Geographic's. <laughs> uh, I would uh, I just go and I just read everything and. Uh, any, any and everything that has most of the issues, uh, sorry, I can't, I can't even talk now. Most of the issues, like multiple times, um, and that kind of informed my my worldview. There was even one point in sixth grade I was just reading so much and so many like older things as well that 
um, one of my, I think it was like fourth grade or fifth grade. Like my, my teacher told my parents, is like, he speaks like he's from a different era. <laughs> <laughs> Did you start speaking like Shakespeare? <laughs> not, not that bad. Not that bad. But I mean, like I was, you know, when you're reading, um, when you're reading stuff about like you know Everest expeditions in the late 1800s or the Victorian era explorations and stuff like that, it's you know that that pattern of speaking is still the reason I use a lot of run-on commas and sentences when I write because that's the way you know British writers did things in the early 1900s, late 1800s. How did you then decide so to take the next step? So coming out of high school, did you go? Into mil in the into the military straight away? Uh, uh, no, I I got really heavily into uh, music um, in middle school and high school. Uh, performed a lot of a lot of groups, and I decided I wanted to. Uh, I, was, I was really passionate about performance. And I decided I wanted to go into music education, and this is where I warned undergrads like, be careful when they say do what you're passionate about, because. <laughs> Performance and, edu and education are two very different things that I didn't realize until it was too late. Um, so uh, I decided that's what I'd want to, uh, to go to school for, to, uh, to uh, end up uh, uh, teaching a high school program or, or, as I got further into it, maybe overseas. And about halfway through, I realized I don't like the education courses at all. This is so horribly boring. I'd rather perform. Um, and but, this is all at university. Mm -hmm. Um, while you're doing your degree, you realize education isn't for me on the, on the performing instead. Mm -hmm. And so did you start performing? I did. At one point I was like in eight ensembles at once and that was, that was hectic. So you, you'd have to do like eight hours of music training. Oh, I never did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no one can, but, uh, just try to keep up with it as much as possible. It's a very, um, when you get into it, it's a very intense world, um, very competitive world. Right, but uh, yeah, the recession kind of killed that for once and for all. Yeah. It's, um, if you can't continue your studies, if you can't, if you just don't have access to money to be a student of, you know, better and better instructors, or go to a better university, you're kind of stuck unless you have some sort of crazy amount of talent. Sure. Yeah. No. I, so. It's definitely in, in the arts. I think it's much more difficult to to. I mean, there's only a handful of people that that can make it. It's the cream of the crop. Yeah. You have to be kind of super crazy. Spend because I've 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 read a few of autobiographies and just seeing how crazy some of these guys are. I mean, the amount of effort they're willing to put mm -hmm. and they don't give it. Like they, they they don't care about anything but what they are what they are obsessed about. Exactly. And I was I was crazy passionate about it. I felt I was on the right track, but in the end, I like I finished my degree, and then I'm like, oh, I don't even own an, my own instrument, right. and I can't get a job to buy my own instrument. Uh, yeah, that makes it really tough. And uh, unfortunately, I, I I'm not alone. Many of my uh, many of my contemporaries are also in the same mm. kind of boat. They've unfortunately had to uh, um, you know give up you know many years of their life to you know retrain into something else right because uh, the good old days are over you can't just get a degree and then get a job <laughs> no you can't unfortunately because everyone's got a degree now Everybody. it's super saturated so coming out of your degree what did you decide to do next and um yeah i, I tried to find try to find work right away just because i needed a break from university but it was really mind-numbing horrible 
call center work. I, I, I did end up teaching at, uh, at a couple of high schools, but it was really part time, never paid the bills. Right. Um, but it was unfortunate that it didn't because I really enjoyed actually teaching the students and passing on, the, you know, what I'd learned from them so they wouldn't make the same mistakes I did at their <laughs> right. stage. Uh, but finally, I just, I was like, I need an out. I saw all my friends kind of just getting stuck in life. Like they, they didn't even have enough money to move away to mm. find something else. They were, they were all just stuck. And, uh, and they know that they have to pay off that debt as well. Pay off their debt. You know, we're, we're talking about like just this horrible live, live to work kind of grind because there's no, there's no free money at the end of the day. Everything went to paying off your student debt and hopefully you had enough to make rent that month as well. Wow. It was really bad. It was a very, very bad time. Um, and, uh, yes, I had this wonderful music degree and just for fun, I threw on a German degree on top of it. I still can't tell you why. I I just showed up at the professor's doorstep. I'm like, you know, I'd really like to learn German. (laughs) Just sign me up for the unit. It's all good. And, uh, and that was great. I got to study abroad for a year. Um, that again, that really opened my horizons to, uh, you know, the, the larger world and what's out there. Right. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, fast forward to the end of school, I was like, well, where do I go? And really, the only the only game in town was uh, join the military. That's the only way you could get out, get a paycheck, and they'd pay off all of my student loans. Right. And how old were you at that time? Let's see, this was two thousand nine. How old was I then? I don't. How old am I now? <laughs> um, twenty five. I was okay. twenty five. So about my age. Yeah. Okay, and so you you went into the military because there weren't any opportunities available at the time, and you just saw this as a viable way to address, to to mm-hmm. to take the next step, to to kind of make a living, pay your debts, and somehow decide what to do afterwards. Or did you go into the military wanting to serve and purely serve, or or did you consider all your financial circumstances? And it was purely a financial decision, but it it was. I, I don't know. It's really hard to explain to um, to a lot of people who didn't live through it. But it's like, that was your choice. I mean, those student loan payments were coming. And when you're mm-hmm. making $10 an hour, that's, you know, it's it doesn't cover all the bases. Right. And they'll just come for the money one way or another. Right, right. And that's the end of it. Yeah. So, um, no, it was, uh, that's that's what based it on. I, I, uh, I got in. I and uh, went through a lot of training. I went in as a as a uh, signals intelligence analyst, which involved six months of Arabic school first. That was horrible. Really? <laughs> well, they only give you a year and a half to become fluent. Thankfully, I only had to do six months. Um, a year and, and a half to become fluent in a language. Yeah, in in a year and a half uh, for Arabic, because that's a hard one. For an easy one like Spanish, they'd only give you six months. What? How are you supposed to learn a whole language in six months? Um, you do it because they'll yell at you till you do it. Really, it's a military mindset. The attrition rate at uh, at the Defense Language Institute is incredibly high, incredibly high. People just fly, just drop out. Just well, you know, they drop you out. Oh, okay. Um, there's constant testing. It's like here's your hundred vocabulary words for today. Okay, now here's your hundred vocabulary words for tomorrow. It's like, but I only learned five of them. Oh wow, it's it's really intense. Um, the good thing that came from that though is just. You know, I never think that anything I do now is is quite so intense in the work. <laughs> Nothing will be as terrible 
as six months of Arabic school, beginning from nothing. <laughs> oh, wow. Did, so was the physical training difficult as well? Um, yeah. Um, I kind of went into it with the mindset of just head down and go through because eventually it'll be over. Mm. Um, but then I kind of discovered I have this sort of like sick enjoyment of, you know, heavy ruck marches. <laughs> and so you had to be in like peak shape, I, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... It's not easy to climb up and down uh, the Hindu Kush at 2 in the morning getting shot at. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, did, a, did a lot of running. Did a lot of... Uh, way too much running. Oh, I can't stand it. Right. But uh, it was like about 2,500 soldiers mm. in, that, in that brigade. And yeah, like three months later, we were deploying to Afghanistan. Wow. So, so you've been to my home country. Ah, yes. Wait, what part? What part are you from? Kabul. Kabul? Yeah. We were in uh, Logar, Wardak, and, well, Bamiyan, but not really. Bamiyan, okay, yeah. Bamiyan's where they had that statue and the mm -hmm. Taliban blew it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we never went in there because, um, yeah, the Hazara always took care of things. If anyone who was Pashtun showed up, they just killed them. Oh, really? Yeah, so it was it was the most peaceful province in all of Afghanistan. At the time, this was in 2011, 2012. Um, there had only been like five coalition deaths there ever. Wow. Since 2001. So okay. super peaceful. Wow. Uh, Wardak and Logar, not so much. <laughs> right. Those are, ooh, those are some interesting places. Did you have some scary situations pop up? Oh, constantly. Really? Um, yeah, the first 48 hours in country. I mean, I hadn't even like unpacked my stuff. I was dropped off um, into uh, uh, the, it would be the southern end of the Tengi Valley. And, uh, yeah, we had enough time to, it was like two in the morning, <laughs> had enough time to run off the helicopter, drop down. I had, uh, had my, my squad there with me, had enough time to stand up, turn to my right and then get shot at. And that proceeded until about five in the morning. <laughs> Whoa. It's not an easy place to get along with. <laughs> it's intense. Um, but it was, it was kind of. It's also a moment to kind of meet the people, which not very many not very people in the military get to do. And I was, of course, just very curious about about these people. I mean, who can forget um, that iconic photograph from the was it late '70s in the National Geographic of uh, the girl from Afghanistan on the cover with the with the green eyes mm -hmm. or with the blue eyes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was um, yeah. I saw I saw a lot of people like her. It's really hard to watch a lot of the a lot of the work we were trying to do just be for nothing. Um, because of the insurgency, there were like a couple brand new UN-funded schools that uh, were either empty or shelled or one. Um, we had a meeting with the the headmaster of the school, and and we said, "Huh, there are no girls going to school here. This is this is you know a co-ed school. We're supposed to send all the kids there." He's like, "Oh no, no problem. People just we just don't have any girls to go here." And I'm like. No, no, you have two daughters. We know this. Hmm. And a little digging around found out that in the middle of the night, uh, uh, it was either Taliban or Haqqani Network. People had put letters on his door saying, if you send your daughters to school, we will kill them. We will, you will watch as we kill them. If anyone else's daughters go to school, we will kill them too, and then we'll kill you. Wow. It was. It got really hairy in those kind of situations. It's like, well, what do we do? Yeah, what can you do? nothing <laughs> it's just the culture unfortunately that's the thing especially in in you know kabul probably it's not as bad because mm -hmm. it's a city so it's urban life but mm -hmm. when you get towards 
countryside and outskirts towards those areas people aren't as educated the culture it's mm-hmm. it's very much similar to the redneck culture that exists in australia in in america people don't want to make the comparison but there are redneck afghans you'll find rednecks in every country mm-hmm. as soon as you move away from you know the cities you'll see you start coming across people who have the culture is like 100 years oh, yeah, yeah. behind what it should be i've seen it <laughs> do you know um yeah, that that is it's it's interesting hearing you talk about mm-hmm. Afghanistan because I, I was I, I was raised there for about five years mm. before I migrated to Afghanistan. This was when the Taliban just began to take over. So '96, there were a lot of rumors and um, going around saying that the Taliban uh, they're going to kidnap all the sons as to recruit them for the army and kidnap the daughters uh, to forcefully mm. wed them to whoever they want yeah. and so my parents said no nah, we're not gonna because both my parents were educators and they mm. said that if we're going to have a country where all the universities schools are shut down and this is going to be the mm. future of our children we're just gonna leave and so we moved to pakistan and eventually got lucky enough to get accepted into australia nice but i again i, I everything that you're saying it's 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 like hearing it it's uh, it's interesting from someone who's also from a different place and being exposed to the culture because those those little things are true about the culture it doesn't it doesn't mean the whole culture is like that no no no. but you have areas like queensland over here is a bit like that so if you go inland you'll find where pauline hansen lives you know where her family lives yeah so please explain that the lady who hates aborigines and uh, asians and now it's muslims and blacks or i don't know what the issue is the the one race party oops i mean one nation <laughs> yes. i would just like to point out as someone who is also a migrant to australia none of these like bigoted assholes say anything to me yeah because i've got the right skin color and my first language was english that's right i call complete nonsense on all of it mm-hmm. it's like okay you want to if you want to really you know push your your anti-migration thing yeah that's a complete aside but i i really hate those people yeah <laughs> i just like really it's it's again it's people with that uh, it's a small world small world people. exactly they, they know what they like they like what they know and everything they have that's is it. all that ever all that ever will be and all that, that's you know, everyone it. else is wrong yeah and we're the right ones yeah it's you mentioned how the hazaras are keeping like they're in bomion and they're keeping that it's relatively safe over there mm-hmm see those those race issues they don't just exist here in australia they exist all over the world yes, in afghanistan what's interesting is that you know you do have all these ethnic groups ethnic tribes and the only times they they seem to come together is when there's like an existential ex, ex, existential ex, i'm just gonna <laughs> move ahead from That's a, a terrible a, word actually. Ex, existential threat that exists you know right um what's his name um uh, the president who was um, who's a movie star Reagan no Reagan 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 sorry the Gipper yeah yeah so Ronald Reagan you know he he had this interesting speech saying that imagine if there was like uh, aliens that were trying to invade our our, our, our you know our, our world everyone would come together to fight them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's interesting when that threat doesn't exist yeah. everybody how quickly fights each other. each other yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, and I've actually been able to draw like other lessons from it in terms of in terms of agriculture. See, I'll bring it back around. Yeah, um, you know, if you want to see how agriculture was a thousand years ago, go to the mountains of Afghanistan, uh, there where they're literally scratching out an existence. Um, it's just they whatever river goes through the valleys, they will branch it off and try to irrigate everything. They'll grow anything 
that can possibly grow there. Um, I don't remember the exact word. It's been too long, but I remember having an interesting conversation with an interpreter about um, about kind of the valleys and how they're very green. We call it the green zone, not to be confused with the uh, the Baghdad green zone, which is very safe. The Afghan green zones very not safe. Not safe. <laughs> um, and he called it uh, he called it jungle. I was like. No, you mean like forest or something? Like, okay, I get it. There's trees. Maybe it's a mistranslation. And then, you know, a few hours we get down in it. Like, oh no, this is a jungle. <laughs> really? They um, well, just they put so many things so close together, and then they don't understand um, things such as like like tree pruning. I remember walking through an orchard where the the branches they didn't prune the lower branches to like you know, to grow the tree and culture it, to grow the best way to bear fruit and to be, you know, accessed for harvesting. So the branches are down to here, then the, you know, down to, uh, sorry for the listeners, uh, the branches growing down to like knee height, and then the weeds are growing up to like mid-chest. <laughs> you can't see like, you know, even a few meters in front of you. Right. Which makes it really great when you're trying to dodge bullets. Right. But, uh, <laughs> um, but they, uh, you know, it's it's a hard life, and they, you know, they're they're all doing everything they can to make it through uh, with with the limitations. But they they do it. They've, you know, these very intensive farms in these areas where you know outside of the green zones, it's just rock. It's just bare brown rock. I'll share some pictures with you mm. after. Um, you know, and they're still subject to you know at high elevation, they're still subject to like the monsoons that happen and intense cold and intense snow that block off access and they don't have regular electricity um and they don't even have access to like synthetic fertilizers in the most part we banned the uh the import and manufacturer of uh ammonium nitrate because it kept getting stolen and turned into bombs (laughs) (laughs) well so the whole country isn't allowed to have fertilizer um they can have urea nitrate Okay, and that's not explosive. That's not explosive, but uh, ammonium nitrate. Yeah, incredibly explosive, as I learned once, wow. twice. On the way out to, uh, we had to, we had to convoy into the uh, Chucky Wardak. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my MRAP was hit twice in one hour with roadside bombs. What do you mean MRAP? MRAP, uh, mine resistant ambush protected vehicles. These massive, how are they? Twenty, thirty ton. Uh, six-wheeled vehicles. They have like a V-shaped hull so that explosions will go up and out. Right. Um, thankfully, no one was injured, but uh, it did rock us really hard. <laughs> was it difficult for you going from, you know, spending three years, I, I'm assuming, in Afghanistan after two years Just of Just one year. Just oh, one year. one year. So after that one year, what, what did you do? Did you come... Did Went you back go? to the U.S. Okay. Uh, and did training for another deployment that didn't happen <laughs> oh i see so was it was it difficult you making that transition from from the military from the army into civilian life because you know you're used to these highs and lows mm-hmm. and then you go back to normal life which may yeah. seem like going from color to grayscale yeah in in many ways um in some ways it's it's really helped me in terms of like just after spending time in the military, you'll do more work than you ever possibly contemplate, and you'll not complain about it. Why? Because it just needs to get done. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, um, on downside, and this is probably coupled with me being just non-traditionally aged for an undergraduate. I'm 33 now. Um, it's I don't know. It's just there's there's a level of maturity. There's a level of understanding, like how the university game works. I mean, I've done it once already. There's a great work ethic that comes from being older and being prior prior service. 
and, and so I feel like I'm now able to like just focus more on my studies than I ever have before. Mm. On the other hand, you know, <laughs> you don't make too many friends by telling them like, hurry up, what are you gonna do? The group project? <laughs> group pro- no, I'm not getting your slides the hour before it's due. It's like, your name's not going on this. Right. <laughs> you know, cause I just, that's, that's, you know, you're used to working with, with professionals or at least people like if they're not actually professionals, they can be made to get the work done. Right. <laughs> you know, here I have to sometimes remind myself like, you can't make them do push-ups right. if they're screwing off. Right. Um, so in the military, you could re- that's something you could definitely do is rely on your, on on the people your mm-hmm. team oh yeah absolutely have because to. your lives are you know in each other's hands so you, you can definitely but when it comes to a group project in 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 that in the army i'm sure everyone's trying their best to keep you safe and themselves mm-hmm. safe whereas whereas over here when you're in the group project no one gives a shit no that's kind of a i don't know at the risk of sounding like an old man you damn kids <laughs> um some of them have not mastered the concept of wake up Take a shower, eat, get dressed, and show up on time. Right, and so you have to you have to deal with that. It's it's been a hard adjustment for me the most, only because I'm used to working really hard all the time, and I'm not with my social and academic peers. Like we're all undergrads, but you know I've I've done this game before. Sure, and I'm intent on pushing it. I don't want to, you know, just kind of settle for, you know, what we call it, C's get degrees. Right, like that's not good enough. You know, why would you do the work if you're not going to do your absolute best? And it's really not that hard to to accomplish if you you know get everything else in order. But I recognize not everyone has my experience. It's just really frustrating to right. work with them sometimes. You know what needs to get done, and you're just going to do it. Exactly. That makes the undergrad experience a lot easier. Yeah. The downside is. There, there are some days where it's like, I would just like to slack off just once. I would like to not be the guy, like, you know, cracking the whip or just, I just don't want to, I don't want to read today. I don't want to, can I, can I skip a class? Is that okay? But really the answer is no. no. Like once you're at that level, it's like. It's hard to go down. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're going to look back and you know, you've, betray- you've let yourself down. You've betrayed yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And then I always, I'm neurotic enough to think it's like. And the professors will think less of me because they know. Yeah. They don't really know. <laughs> no, they don't know. Right. That's so funny. They know. That's so funny you say that because uh, I, I thought exactly the same way in my undergrad. Um, that's so funny, dude. Because that, that obsession, I think, that you bring it through your... I think it mm-hmm. comes from doing something really difficult mm-hmm. and constantly doing difficult things in your life. When you do that normal everyday life becomes so much more mundane and easy yeah. like doing getting yourself up on assignment is nothing mm-hmm. compared to what you did in afghanistan or the training yeah. that you went through through the military yeah. you know from day one well it's also it's also hard to be with a group of people sometimes just from my perspective who who don't have the same shared experience yeah and so it's hard it's not it's not only hard for me to share with them but it's also hard for them to share with me there's, mm. there's that kind of gap and i think that's that's unfortunately a thing that all non-traditional students go through. Um, so they, I can see how they all relate to each other and they're all helping each other out and that's great. And I can also see where I would be an intrusion into that. Mm. Where, um, you know, I need to let them, you know, be 20-year-olds. Let them, sure. let them, you know, make mistakes. That's part of accepting it. You have to yes. learn. And, you know, can I jump in and say, you're doing it wrong. Let me Let me help you out with life here. But... Will they have learned anything from it? No. And it's it would actually hold them back. Right. 
Plus, I know I know I, I'm intense. Yeah, <laughs> these kind of things. That's why I'm doing you know the, the kind of research that I'm doing because it requires you know an intense mindset and someone who's who's ready for it. If I wasn't ready for it, I wouldn't be you know producing any any good work. Right, right. That's actually such a good point. Uh, it's it's good to recognize that what type of person you are and how different people are compared to that. I I kind of had have had the, I'm not a mature age student by any um, means but I, I did come into this degree my first degree um, my first degree my undergrad degree that I did at Western Sydney a couple of years three years later than I should have mm-hmm. um, but what that taught me was it, similar to you there's a level of intensity and focus that you can bring in from the experiences that you've learned so for you it was the military for me it was just mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a combination of things from failing a lot and realizing that I never want to be in that position yeah. to learning the discipline through martial arts mm. that helped a lot you know I think that was a vehicle that helped me develop my human potential learning the discipline mm-hmm. and pushing yourself when you're uncomfortable um, and then developing that sort of character for yourself you know yeah. you've become this person now and then when you come across in group projects or other students who don't have the same sort of intensity and focus it's very easy to judge them and say hey like you guys are completely doing this wrong and that's been something that i've been trying to work on more and and Mm -hmm. rather than judging people because as you said people haven't gone through your experiences Mm -hmm. people don't see the world as you do and they may need a few more years of failing or you know putting a shit effort before they come to the realization of this is how i need to approach it try to be the best i could be but some people never have that realization and it's it's i'm realizing like it, it's 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 hard as you're saying it's hard for you because to relate for them in, in in certain ways i feel the same way because i feel like if i'm around people who don't share the same sort of approach that i do i'm going to be influenced by them and become like them mm-hmm. but in the same way i can't isolate myself from everyone because there's only a certain number of people who are as crazy as you and i may be do you know what i mean like exactly so it, it's difficult um to relate but it, it i think the first step is recognizing it yeah recognizing the crazy the, the insanity that exists and just you know not everyone can can have that and it's probably a good i'm not sure if it's a good thing but no, we're all we're all different people that's, that's like, it. i come from an environment where if you're not a professional or you're not you know good at what you you're doing you can be made to be good mm. you can be made to be good very quickly right right, right yeah <laughs> and you're not gonna like it no but you know this isn't life or death this is this is school that's it i mean it's you know you're trying to get out of it what you can get out of it and and get the knowledge you need to move on in life but there is there is an after <laughs> yeah yeah so that's also why i take it so seriously like there you know we only have a limited amount of time to get every scrap of knowledge we can from our professors um, and any amount of like experience we can get in sort of like practical sessions or or internships, and then it's done. Then you're going to be thrown out. That's it. You know, to the to the real world. And yeah. That's where it re- you'll really realize how much you didn't know that you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unconscious incompetence. You know. Exactly. That's actually you bring a good point. Um, I often think about like how do great people achieve greatness in their lives. And, and I think, you know, people like that had to go through the same sort of experiences, but mm-hmm. like, for example, university. And I think it's not so much the brain and 
you know, their, their genes that separate them from others. I think what they do is they recognize opportunities before, or they see opportunities that other people don't see. So in first year, a person um, in my first year self might have, and I did, I approached this terribly. I just you said C's make degrees for me it was P's make degrees right so it was terrible so for me it was more of a burden than rather than an opportunity um, but definitely that changed you know um, much more I'm a completely different person to, to how I was in my first year of my undergrad now I've finished my masters but I remember having this realization that a great person throughout the would go through the same journey but will take so much more out of it mm -hmm. because first of all, they're trying to be the best they can be. And because they're trying to be the best they can be, opportunities opened up for them. Exactly. You know, like I'm sure you have examples in your undergrad where you've done the best you could do and then an academic might see that. And maybe that's how you start working with your acad academic supervisor, you know? So things like that happened to me and I realized, oh, this is the only thing we need to focus on, trying to be the best we could be and that's how we're going to create opportunities. Exactly. No one's born to greatness. That much I've learned. Um, and I don't think a person's knowledge and capability is accurately represented by grades. I knew plenty of students from high school who were like top of the class, best grades, crash and burn, drop out of university. Yep. Um, really quickly. And for some of them, it was quite, quite alarming. And there are some people who barely made it out of high school that just because they've been knocked around so much and they've had to work so hard for everything um, end up being, you know, they have these brilliant insights that, uh, you know, a student who's focused solely on, I got to get these, you know, the right number on this assignment. You mm. know, they, they just don't have that. And, um, you know, I've, again, it goes back to like, just kind of stand off, let them do it. Mm. <laughs> Recognize that it doesn't have to always, you know, in order to be, you know, correct in an academic setting, you know, where we are at right now, like there's there's a level that's acceptable. It's not going to be acceptable tomorrow, but for right now, this is where they need to be. Hmm. This is where I need to be. And I'm only where I am because I have made every mistake in the book. And that's why, you know, I appreciate more where I am now. Hmm. Uh, and I know what to do correctly. If I didn't make those mistakes, if I didn't have that hardship, you know, I'd probably still make the, the same mistake again somewhere else down the road. Or I wouldn't appreciate as much as what I have now. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, let's focus a bit about your future. Yeah, no. <coughs> fighting is cold. <sighs> is that rain on Wednesday? I got you. Well, I was like fighting it off. I'm like, okay, I'm good. And then the rain and the cold just oh. did me in. Dude, I, I don't blame you, man. I, you, you come from Hawaii, so. <laughs> I, I acclimated way too well to Hawaii. It's, it's like everything else that's not from there. It acclimates too well. That's why they have so many invasive species. Yeah, dude, it's, it's too pleasant. It's, too pa it's paradise, man. How could you not acclimate? Well, you know? I could do the weather forecast for Honolulu for the next 10 years, yeah, yeah. plus or minus climate change. It's like <laughs> high of 25, low of 20, partly cloudy. <laughs> that's every day, all day. <laughs> Pretty much every day, all day. That's when you day. drive home, it's like, oh, look, another damn rainbow. Oh, God, another one. <laughs> <laughs> or if you go to you go to, to Big Island, uh, the island of Hawaii, not just the whole thing, um, Kailua Kona on the on the leeward side of the islands, because the rain takes so long, the winds push the rain up and over Mauna Kea, and it you know condenses into rain. You can set your watch to it between like two and three in the afternoon. It's like, uh, and it's going to rain now. Really? <laughs> it's that regular when the trade winds blow. Wow. Yeah. 
Oh, that's pretty. Cool. Have you been to the observatory in in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. Oh no, the not on the mountain. That was closed. Um, uh, there's actually quite a bit of protesting going on right now. Yeah, because they want to build a new one. They on... want to build yeah, like a thirteenth, and uh, on Mauna Kea, and this is where. Um, this kind of goes back to the difference between agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Uh, is you know we need to, as scientists in general, get out of our laboratories, get our heads out of our books, and engage. Mm. Agriculture, especially, has like lost control of its own narrative. We we're having a hard time explaining to people what we are, what we do, why you know what we do is important for the future, and it's going to people who don't know what we're doing. Um, who, who don't have our experience and our training and our knowledge. And the same way the astronomy and physics world was shocked when there's all these protests against their telescope. It was like, because they, they don't see that culturally this is, this is stolen land mm-hmm. and the only person who was allowed to let people go up on the sacred mountain was the king. And since the monarchy was overthrown, and that's another subject entirely. Right. <laughs> And Hawaii is under illegal occupation by the United States military, just to be political about it. <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's all these protests, and finally, all these all these scientists had to stop and say, like, "What?" <laughs> they were completely blindsided, right. by it, and we need to understand those things. Yeah. So that's and agriculture has its own its own things. We need to understand cultural practice. We need to understand why we can't just um, you know open up new lands for for grazing and farming. Like we used to, we had part of being sustainable is also sustaining the natural ecosystem because mm-hmm. agriculture and and um, and the ecosystem. I learned this very intimately in Hawaii. Are just two sides of the same coin, and uh, when one tries to take over the other, it just doesn't work. So there's a way to make it work. It just re- requires a lot of effort by a lot of people. Right. That's interesting you said because agriculture can um, when you when you do have these large scale farms, for instance, growing mono, um, monoculture, so mm-hmm. just one crop. That you have to break down like like you have to chop down trees and mm-hmm. and habitats you know rainforests for you to create that land mm-hmm. to grow food. I think that's one of the major misconceptions about modern like agriculture in the modern era, is that um, like especially produce is like quote unquote natural. Mm. If you go out to a field or an orchard, it looks pretty. It looks like nature, but it really isn't. To my eyes, it's as artificial as going into the Apple store. Yep. It's that modern. There's that much technology involved. It doesn't in any way resemble a natural ecosystem to me. It's taken, you know, one plant out of an ecosystem, and after thousands of years, or a few years, if you're doing uh, transgenic work, uh, making an organism that is beneficial solely for us, it would not exist on its own ever. Mm. Um, and then we're changing the soil so that it benefits that single organism. And any soil microorganisms that help it are good. Any that don't are bad. So we're throwing off the whole scales of stability. Mm. And when it can't regenerate itself, that's when we get into, like we started with, like the, the synthetic fertilizers. They're great when you're trying to get quickly accessible, high, con, you know, high amounts of a single nutrient to your plants. Mm. It's really bad for everything else. Right, right. Completely upsets the soil biome. Uh, a lot of nitrogen just evaporates back into the air and what doesn't have um, what doesn't get absorbed is um, through the process of eutrophication just wash into the streams we actually found in Hawaii the um, some of the um, I'm gonna forget the whole whole branch of science 
oceanographers? No, they're not studying oceans. They're studying marine biologists. That's who. <laughs> marine biologists, because when you're surrounded by coral reefs, right. where else are you going to study, right? right? They found that on Oahu in the mid-90s, when the last sugarcane plantation shut down, that was the last time they had um, an invasive algal bloom that killed all the fish and, and damaged the reef. And they're like, huh. And so years later, it's like, still don't have one. It's because there's no Runoff. fertilizer going into the uplands being washed right. down. Run, yeah, runoff into the, into the oceans. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Ah. There's a way of balancing this. Yeah. That's where I get back to, again, like the Green Revolution. They found these very black and white ways. It's like X plant needs Y nutrient in order to survive. And we've just kind of gone with that because it makes sense. And they, they recognized the environmental impacts that would happen. And they said, you know what? This is acceptable for now. We need to figure this out. But the first thing is getting people fed and mm. ending the problem of world hunger. Right. Because once we get that down, then we can cover, you know, the next subject. And, the next, and we're still not even to ending the question of world hunger. Um, that's why, like, the, the research that was done, the research that's ongoing is so important. Because if you have your, your graph... Go with me in your mind for a minute. Mm-hmm. And so for the listeners, you have your, your diagonal line that is your logarithmic line. It's, uh, that's the increase in agricultural output. And then you have your very steep curve going from zero to infinity. Exponent. That's your population curve because it's exponential. Uh. We're getting to the point where uh, the, the population curve is going to very quickly overtake so one's a linear relationship and one's mm-hmm. an exponential and obviously exponential is just going to overtake the linear because you're just growing so quickly now obviously the human population will not grow exponentially into right. perpetuity we're looking at leveling out worldwide but the common statistic we're seeing is by 2050 um, the UN estimates there'll be about a billion people hungry in the world wow chew on that for a minute <sighs> dude that's probably all the hungry students with the student loans <laughs> You'd think, but that's just a, a, a estimate. Okay, that's just that's scary, man. That is very scary, and it's very scary in the Sydney region to watch all of our farmland being turned into houses. Yeah, no, because agricultural planning is not occurring. No. You know, the 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 greasiest, uh, sorry, no, the noisiest wheel gets the grease, something like that. Right. Just as you're talking about agriculture, um, in my undergrad, I did a. A, a program um, they were talking about a, a, a style of farming that uses the landscape and, and the ecosystem rather than the, oh, I forget the name of it there's a couple different models could you um, name some there's like crop rotations um, I'm trying to think there's fallowing there's, there's a whole bunch I could I probably don't remember the specific names for but there are some that are um the one that I'm thinking of, essentially, what they wanted to do was have these small-scale farms or these farms where the, it's a whole ecosystem. Mm, okay. So so they aren't putting energy to create energy. The ecosystem is sustaining itself, mm. and they're just harvesting and then letting the ecosystem okay. keep going. So I forget the name of it, but I just thought it was such a fascinating talk. Yeah. Uh, uh, thought. I know what you're talking about, and I forget the name for it too. But there are many... Um, this is part of like Green Revolution Part 2. Um, so there's kind of like more of the, I'm on the end of very like strict like um, you know uh, research-based science to contribute. But then at the same time, um, it's really interesting to me to see like um, native farming practices, um, 
the field of like ethnobotany, for example, understanding what traditional practices are for plant cultivation, why they do it, could modern practice help or hinder, should native practice be incorporated. Um, I saw a lot of this in Hawaii where they were um, re, re, uh, I can't talk. <laughs> They're rebuilding uh, the traditional taro lo'i, which are the flooded patches they do um, in many areas. Because before Europeans uh, made their way there, the, the Hawaiians had about a population of a million people, just slightly less what it is now for the whole island chain. And they were able to feed themselves sustainably. And they did it with a very limited number of crops. And um, and they did it uh, without you know undue uh, environmental impacts. Uh, at the university there, they have a, a patch in the Hawaiian Studies uh, Center. They actually test it regularly uh, by research scientists. The water that comes out of it is cleaner than what goes into it. It's like an artificial wetlands. It also supports supports the taro. It supports fish. It supports um, supports the soil. It supports um, everything around it they don't have to use um synthetic fertilizers if they do very very little mm. and only what's needed because they can regenerate it for itself now these kind of changes in farming um would require a massive paradigm shift in just the way we live um, obviously we can't expect two-thirds of the world population just to give up everything they're doing mm. and go back to live on the land but what we can do is incorporate a lot of those practices into um into farming now we can um, stop broad acreage. We can get it down to smaller lots. We can rotate more crops through. Um, try to work with the land. Instead of forcing the land to accommodate human needs, work with what the land will naturally produce. Don't try to, um, if, you know, if, um, you know, Australia is another great example. If, you know, broad tracts of land can't support massive numbers of sheep and cattle, indefinitely then don't have massive numbers of sheep and cattle indefinitely on that land um find other alternatives or um i mean is there's a lot that goes into it and there, it's going to be there's no silver bullet that's that's an, another misconception of, mo of like modern agriculture and research that goes into it there's no single answer that's going to fix these problems it's going to be all of us collectively working together and i think a lot of times there's kind of like competition between the different uh, disciplines when we all, we all need to realize we're speaking the same language. Mm. Now we just need to, you know, put it together in practice. What, what are your aspirations? What do you want to accomplish with yourself? Everything. Uh, <laughs> no, I, if, I were, if I were 10 years younger, I would say absolutely everything. Now that I'm a bit older, I realize, like, we only have limited time <laughs> to accomplish everything. My goal... Wherever I end up in the field of agriculture, I want to be the subject matter expert. I want to be the one that everyone comes to uh, worldwide if they, they need an answer to what the problem is. If it's disease resistance, if it's a specific crop, if it's a type of ecosystem, if it's, if it's uh, regarding the climate or nutrients or pathogens, whatever. Um, I'm kind of equally passionate about it all, which doesn't make it easier to choose a career. <laughs> um... In the future, yeah, I just, I want to be in a place where I can absolutely make a difference. I don't want to get lost in the scientific shuffle and be stuck doing, you know, doing someone else's research or, or doing research for the sake of, of, of just a publication. I want to have it make a difference because, mm. you know, I'm not going to solve all these problems by myself. 
but I can contribute my part to it. Mm. And you know, one day I hope some other poor undergrad is going to be forced to poorly cite my research <laughs> in a paper. <laughs> so that that would be that would be one big aspiration. Okay. Looking into the future, what would be your fee? What would be one fee or number of fees that you, you, you that you can think of? Is there anything specifically that it could be as broad or as as specific as you like? Anything that scares you? Anything that scares me? Mediocrity, just being average. That's it. To me, being average is being forgettable. You you haven't you haven't done any you haven't even done badly enough for someone to care that you messed it up. You're just kind of like, that's a, if that's the best someone can ever say about you or the work you've done, that's that's the worst possible thing. Mm. Can't stand mediocrity. I mean, if you're gonna fail, uh, fail big. I had a music instructor tell me once, is like, do not make uh, when you're playing, don't make sins of omission. Don't make mistakes because you're not trying. You're not, you know, trying to push it. Make sins of commissions. Like I missed that entrance because I was really intensely counting on it. I got so excited I just missed it. Mm. Or I came in too early. Or I'm too loud here because I'm just I'm so passionate about this one section and I didn't give myself enough dynamic range to go higher. It's the same thing. It was like, don't don't be afraid of that. Um, in terms of you know my field in general, I'm afraid it's too little, too late. The Paris Climate Accord is being talked about right now. It's a, it's a, it's a big issue. I am proud to say, um, um, within the last 24 hours, uh, the state of Hawaii has approved its own legislation to meet the Paris Climate Accords in its own way. They plan on being 100% renewable energy by 2045. Nice. That's so awesome. if the federal government won't do it, then the states can do it, I suppose. But um, I, I fear that a lot of times... Um, more than any other form of science, because agriculture is so closely tied to humanity, and at the end of the day, we all got to eat. Hmm. It's such a it's such a very personal thing. I worry that it's not going to be enough. The work's not going to be enough, or that people just won't care enough. That it's just, you know, especially in in developed countries where we're so complacent. We have food. We have too much food. We have the wrong kinds of food. We have food that's not even good for us, and we still eat it anyway. And it all comes from a restaurant or a supermarket. And we're not worried about it ever not being there. Well, I've been in places in the world where people have literally nothing. Mm -hmm. And one bad year means people die. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, with the increase in population, uh, increase in life expectancy, and um, decrease in arable land, in increased uh, problems with climate change, these, these are all going to add up. And my fear is we're not going to collectively get off our butts and do something about it. And it begins, you know, with a simple thing as, you know, turn your lights off mm. at home. Don't be, I even called out people at the academy, in the academy room the other day. They were saying, the question something about, is Australia doing enough about climate change? I saw these comments about the government needs to do this. The government needs to do that. Stop, stop encouraging you know, this kind of behavior from the government. And I wrote at the bottom is like, stop thinking that the government's going to solve all your problems. Mm. Take responsibility for your carbon footprint. Take responsibility for your food waste. A huge issue in Australia is food waste. Um, we can't, you know, sit here and boo-hoo the fact that people go to bed hungry every night when we're throwing out food. Mm. Um, it's, it's going to take all of us doing a lot of work, but I fear that it might just be too little too late. I'm, 
that being said, well, it's going to be too little, too little, too late for the most vulnerable. Um, those of us in, you know, we're fortunate enough to live in this very modern industrial country. Mm. I'm not really worried for Australia mm. in terms of getting food. Um, I'm worried about what what we'll do to maintain that if we don't change the way we do um, we do business here. Because mm. it would not be. I don't think there'd be much uh, much problem from the decision maker's point of view to open up, you know, virgin bushland to more farming, or to. They certainly have no issue with building houses over existing farmland. <laughs> no. Um, I've, I've even in this semester I've looked at the government's projections. The city of Penrith alone is expected to increase um, in the next eighteen years by fifty percent. Wow. Where are those people going to live? Do you think? That's crazy. Yeah. And you know, and that's a good thing that we enjoy a great quality of life here. That's why people want to live here. That's why I want to live here. Yeah. I I, I will miss my my island home very much, and always be connected to the islands of Hawaii. And I'm eternally grateful for what I've I've learned from there, and that I was able to form my really my foundational um, scientific and cultural understanding of agriculture um, in the islands. However. You know, there are also no jobs there because yeah. <laughs> I don't want to work in the tourist industry uh, for nine dollars an hour. So you know, I want to live here too. So it's you know, it's not a bad thing that people want to live here, but we tend to be very short-sighted in our mm. planning for um, for, the, for the future. For the future, yeah. right now, people are concerned with home prices, and rightly so. But building over your farmland so we have to push farmland further into the native ecosystem so we're destroying that it's just a domino effect it is yeah that's i think that's 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 a very good point you, you bring up you know we may not feel it in australia but i think when we'll take action is when we do feel it yeah that's the thing and i think that seems to be that's always that's human nature you you, mm-hmm. you Inertia is what drives us until there's enough of a force that changes our resting state. There's a, mm-hmm. there's enough of a motivation. We don't do anything, and yeah. that that's scary. That re- that really is. I've seen it in the U.S. as well. It's like, why should I worry about a recycling program? Hell, the place, last place I lived in the continental U.S., we didn't even have like trash service. People burned their trash in open pits. What? <laughs> there's no trash service out there that far, let alone recycling or anything like oh, that. Oh right. Um, you know, because there's always more land. There's always yeah. more, and you know. Then when I did my year abroad in Germany, it you know they they have limited land mass. They're about the size of New South Wales, but with 82 million people, they've felt the impacts. It has hurt their bottom line. That's why they have such an aggressive recycling program. Hmm. That's why they are concerned with the issues of like like acid rain destroying their forests. True. They still have massive tracts of forests, but it's the most horrifying place I've ever been <laughs> in broad daylight because you look around, it's like there are no animals there are no deer running through here there are barely any birds that's the impact they're looking at now again we're fortunate here in australia we have you know very few people and this huge land mass and everything's just going to be great forever right (laughs) it's not the case and we're fooling ourselves into thinking we don't need to take dramatic action right now um especially where agriculture is concerned i think for the most part the decision makers are focused on um, the late stage capitalist model where agriculture is a concern only to the point where it's a major export and thus a jobs creator hmm. if, if you're thinking about it in terms of dollars and cents you've already missed the whole if, point if, yeah 
Yeah, because there's a I forget what the Nauru I think is the name of the island. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of it. That's where they um, put refugee, um, mm-hmm. so asylum seekers if they come on a boat, um, they take them to Nauru and over there, you know, they detention centers. But uh, Nauru, I think initially was a tourist attraction, and then it became they realized that there was some i think they mined it for coal or some for some other natural resource and essentially they mined the whole like um island into like they destroyed everything that the natural habitat um everything that made it a tourist attraction got taken away just because the government was willing to make money to sell its own resources but by doing that it was short term so they they sold they exported a lot of whatever resource they were making and then once that was done it was just like the whole country would just look terrible and no one, no one was going to come back to to there. and so what they did was they started rent like so the australian government i believe gives them about 20 million dollars 25 million dollars every year to house these refugees to keep them from there and, and prevent them from getting to Australia, which is, which is fun. We, we could talk about that stuff <laughs> all day. years are going to make a movie about how sad it makes Australians to feel that they did this once. Oh my that's, God. That's, that's just being like, kind of shady about it. Okay, that's messed up. <laughs> Looking back at your life uh, in retrospect, up to the point you've reached now, you said you were 33, mm-hmm. so pretty young still. But uh, are there any key lessons that you could pass on to people who are considering following a, a similar path not in terms of military or anything but it's people don't who, yeah don't. <laughs> it's not worth it they lie to you the recruiter will lie to you oh god is anything that we can take that you could pass on to people listening some lessons mm, let's see lessons hmm let's see oh there's, there's quite a few that come to mind first university isn't the place where you grow up where you become a man or a woman, or however you identify, like you it's, need to take it's it. It's good seriously. that you put that last bit, last yes. bit, because <laughs> people are going to be not mm-hmm. so angry. Can't believe you did. The full. We want to represent the full spectrum. That's wherever it. you are, wherever you are on the line, this is not the place where you you learn to be an adult. Yeah. This is a place where you're here to learn the skills you need to go on in the world and and you make a difference in whatever field, and to be you know hopefully the best at whatever you want to do so don't take it for granted that's that's the first lesson i've seen it in myself i've seen it in many other students if you take this opportunity for granted and you just kind of blow it off you're you're gonna you're gonna miss out on a lot of opportunities that could come your way mm-hmm. and you're setting yourself up you know that's you know, you're starting what your is going to be your professional reputation don't start it off being mediocre um other lessons surround yourself with people that are better than you Hmm. and sometimes that's hard to do and sometimes it's really easy Um, I know for myself doing my my final year um, field project being around uh, researchers at Hawksbury Institute for the Environment has forced me to be better Um, I felt like I was you know pretty good going in with my academic writing now it's just through the roof because um, this is kind of point two point two point one don't be afraid of of making you know these mistakes don't be afraid of feedback i think nowadays we're really concerned like it has to be perfect the first time or i'm just no good or i don't want to hear someone say something negative just tell me the positives like well you don't grow from that so surround yourself with people who are better than you at what you want to do 
and you will inherently be forced to be better. Um, when I was at uh, at the military language school, they told us that too. It was like, do you want to be? I, I can't swear on this, can I? You can. We'll beep it out. Okay. It's not enough. Uh, if you want to be the smartest motherfucker in the room, you have to actually be the smartest motherfucker in the room. So, <laughs> you know, if you want if you want to be that, read some difficult books. You know, don't just read you know, fiction because it's comfortable. Read some difficult things, and then and and push yourself in every single way. And when you are the smartest motherfucker in the room, it's not enough to be that guy. You have to let them know you're the smartest motherfucker in the room. <laughs> that's that's important too. Like, don't be ashamed of your of your skills. Don't be ashamed of saying, "I'm good at this" or "I'm not good at that." You know, the other end of it. Mm. You know, don't be afraid to admit your faults and shortcomings. And secondarily, don't be afraid to admit when you can do something really well. Mm. Like I'll admit right now. I don't, you know, I have to work hard to work with groups because I'm just so used to working by myself all the time. It's really hard for me to to not take over a group. Hmm. There we go. That's something I constantly have to work on. Hmm. As a for example, things I do well, everything else. No, it's like, <laughs> awesome, guys. Everything is awesome. No, we can't do that. I'll charge you for it. No, you, everything's awesome when you're part of a team, but that's not the case exactly. for you. <laughs> that's no, everything. But, that's, but then, you know, but then I, I also, I recognize, you know, when I was, again, when I was 10 years younger, it's like, I can do this all myself. Mm. And sometimes I could. But then I recognize when I'm older, it's like, I need people to check me. Yeah. Because I can go off the completely wrong direction, authoritatively go off in the completely wrong direction and not realize until it's too late, oh, this is so wrong. Mm. You know? So that's that's where, you know, I'm, I'm pushing myself in one area, for example. I need to and that's part of you know surround yourself with people that are better than you hmm. so they they can check you so you can make sure that you're doing things right the first time or you know or that you can learn to do it right and they can inspire you as well i mean exactly they raise your standards um for sure mm-hmm. if you're constantly around people we kind of touched on this before mm-hmm. you know when you're around mediocre people it's easy to become mediocre exactly and uh yeah i had a drill sergeant tell me once oh well, not me personally but the group because from day one, they're just like, you are all a unit now. You all, one of you messes up, you all mess up. <laughs> um, uh, that's part of why I probably don't trust groups, because I kept <laughs> messing up. No, uh, <laughs> I do so many push-ups for other people. Oh, God. Um, uh, but she just told us one day, it's like, your tolerance for bullshit is way too high. <laughs> like, you all need to tolerate this shit a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> like you think you've done something you think this is okay no drill sergeant then why the fuck are you doing it <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh, she was also the drill sergeant that said famous things such as next time you one of you farts I'm gonna spray Lysol in your face oh, Lice? Lysol oh sorry like air freshener oh okay sorry. <laughs> I forget what the brands are here I still don't know Australian brands it confuses me so much to go to the yeah, supermarket they're, they're not worth it knowing trust me <laughs> this guy with no brand like this one looks about right I don't yeah know. but uh what? I think if I have any other any other life lessons I think those are pretty good those are pretty good for now yeah I like that I, yeah. d- I need a couple beers in me before I could sit down and be like look let me tell you about life <laughs> <laughs> break it down for us <laughs> break, it, break it down no, that's good well um We've almost hit, yeah, we hit an hour and a half. So, yeah. Um, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, John. I I appreciate your time. This was a fun conversation for me. Awesome. Glad I could help. Cool.
station and we've started some video recording today yeah we're gonna see how that goes yeah. uh, you guys get to see our faces unfortunately which, hey man speak for yourself dude <laughs> <laughs> no jokes i sound like i love myself yeah. i don't i don't um how interesting was this uh our, our guest today john's a great a great guy i reckon he's you can tell he's had a lot of different life experiences yeah um it's really interesting listening to people like that because you know i think he mentioned that he moved around like every couple of years just living in a different space and you can just imagine the uh, experiences people accrue doing that time and time again yeah was what was interesting is that he started off uh with uh doing Two degrees, one in music, in music and, and German. German. Yeah. Right. And his advice was don't do degrees in arts when the economy is on a downturn. Because yeah. he did it around the financial crisis. 2008. Yeah. Right when it, when it hit the shitter. You it's know? tough, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, like I think you've still, like as a person, you've got to do something you're passionate about and something yeah. you're interested in. But you have I, to be I, mindful I, of. You have to be mindful how, about yeah. the way things are going as well. But I guess you can't even see something like that. How are you going to predict the financial that, yeah. crisis? Like, no, that's Jesus. so true. Even actually, you know, when, when he was telling his story i i i'm a very irrational person when it comes to my own future like i i just think if i just do something that i'm very passionate about and i do it really well it's all gonna work out right you think like no matter i'm of the opinion that no matter what it is i think i can i can make it work and somehow create money Mm. but that might be because i'm just ignorant of what's coming up (laughs) you know what i mean and john's story kind of highlights that how important it is to yeah it's important to pursue your passion but also you have to be mindful be mindful of the opportunities that are available out there yeah it's true but you can't you can't live in fear about what might happen as well so like the flip side of that is like if you're always scared about what could happen in the future you'll never do anything so i think sometimes you got to take that plunge and kind of just deal with stuff as it comes up yeah no, I, I totally agree with you. This is not to say that if you do have a passion that you shouldn't pursue it because mm. because you heard John's story or you're hearing us talking, you know, like, oh, my God, I'm scared. No, no mm. none of that. Um, but you know what was really messed up is the American education system, dude. Oh, yeah, will, that's right. Because, yeah, he was dude, saying he had to uh, join the army in order to pay off his degree. Student loans. Yeah. Within six months, yeah. you have to get a job. Because you gotta pay those loans. How messed up is this? That yeah. all the other, like any other debt that you might have in America, is forgiven except your student loans. Yeah, yeah. So you can like you can go bankrupt and default on a business debt and things like this. You can rip off thousands of people and go bankrupt and lose their money and your money and like be fine. But hey, if you want to go and get an education and the if something happens and you end up poor because of a financial crisis or something, they'll just leave you high and dry. Man, that sucks. <laughs> Dude. Like we whinge a lot about about like the the um, how we have to pay for education here in Australia, and I think you know that's fair as well to be honest. Because my parents got a f- totally free education; they didn't pay a cent for it, and now we have to pay quite a fair bit for our educations. But Having said that, when you look at people and you hear stories like John's story about, you know, being left with um, tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt and the Mm. only way you can pay that off is to go to the army and join the army. It's not something he necessarily wanted to do. He had to Mm. do that to pay off his debt, his education as well, which, you know, education helps the society you're living in. So I don't know where they get off kind of taking advantage of students like that. I I totally, when, when I hear cases, like when I hear, when I heard that, I'm like, okay, 
there's gotta be some like this is where the conspiracy theorists go crazy like see the Illuminati designed a system that dumbs down the people and keeps them as slaves and you know makes them work for pennies and all the stuff you go through this four five ten years of whatever university with half a million dollars worth of loans uh under your name and and at the end of the day you're you're stuck in a system where you have to make money to keep yourself afloat and you keep yourself afloat by keep you know, it's just a a, a, a a horrible uh vicious cycle yeah um but it's interesting how that's connected to yeah you said he got into the army because he had to pay those yeah, debts off yeah but i think it speaks to about how society values education like if that's how they're valuing it they, it's kind of like saying uh, education isn't like a right that you have you know you have to yeah you, you have to it's earn, a privilege you have to earn your education it's a privilege to be educated which is bullshit because yeah. educated people help the whole of society you know yeah mm. like your education yeah sure you get a direct payoff by getting educated and no one's going to deny that but having an educated society helps everybody so i don't see i don't kind of get that like we should be trying to make education more accessible because it would be a better society if it's more accessible yeah no i, I totally agree um let's talk about a bit of his experiences in afghanistan yeah first of all how crazy wow. is this guy that he went to my home country yeah um and then came close a couple of times to death because of like explosives yeah. made from fertilizer yeah something you were telling me about mm. Didn't you make like a bomb using fertilizer? Oh yeah, when I was young and stupid. Yeah. <laughs> See, I can't do that. Yeah. I can't be young and stupid. I go straight into jail. They're like, not nope, terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> no time yeah, for you to be true. young and stupid. I can maybe get away yeah. with it. They're like, this guy's gonna take this back to Syria and blow up some shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I like singe my eyebrows just mucking around with like fertilizer and things like that. I don't want to explain what I did because yeah. you know I don't want any like copycats. You don't, you don't want my people finding out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Racist. But yeah, That's don't don't play with fertilizer and fire people. Let's just put yeah. it. Let's just let's just leave it at that. Can I tell you a funny story? When I went to Afghanistan, this is in 2007. So, yeah. so about six years after uh, America invaded, or five six years after America invaded, and this is like after maybe. 12 years or no no actually it had been 11 years that i hadn't been gone to afghanistan at all so 96 was when i last left yeah. and over there they they don't have toilets like we do over here they do now but in 2007 when the country was really starting to develop you know the the it was just coming out of the taliban regime and the technology was you know coming into the into into the country and there was um, progress and um but nonetheless they have like these toilets that have a hole and then it's like a like underneath it's not even like underground oh they did it was actually a well that yeah. dried up and then it just turned into a toilet so they just put like a a, a board over it and like put a hole and you just you just sit down and you, just, you, you do your business right and this is how stupid i was in 2007 <laughs> i decided to burn toilet paper and to see if i if i threw it down the hole if methane would burn oh, does it dude i got so fortunate that it didn't catch fire because there's a video online guys you should look it up this idiot throws like a lighter or something burning in um in a situation like that where there's shit stored and the whole thing just explodes bro <laughs> can you imagine the first time i go back exploded on you as well man dude and i was on the blood so if it exploded i would have fell into the well 
not only maybe I would have died, but the least I would have been covered with my cousins, grandparents, oh. <laughs> family, oh. goddamn feces, man. Oh, Jesus. Oh. Hey, aren't you going to China soon anyway? You better get used to this. Dude, they have flushes. Yeah. Dead. In Dude. some places. I'm going Beijing. Yeah, you're probably right. Beijing's pretty... And I imagine intense. around the universities, it'd be pretty... Yeah. I remember because I went to China, you know, I'm not even going to try and remember what year. It was a long time ago. And yeah, there was some... Back there was when some you good, were young man. There were some good toilets, but there were some bad toilets too. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's messed up. But it's, it's good to see that um, John's experience, you know, the, the difficulty that he faced in Afghanistan, the challenges that he faced in Afghanistan... Um, are so much greater than what he sees here at, at, at in Australia at uni that it's so easy for him to just yeah. fly through these challenges. He's also a very motivated person, though. Like, uh, uh, his greatest fear was um, mediocrity. Mediocrity. So, you know, that tells you about someone, you know, that tells you that he really wants to stand out mm. and he really wants to do his best yeah. at every single thing he does. And yeah. that kind of struck me through the whole conversation that he sounds like someone who's really. He doesn't want to do anything half-assed. That's what I mean. He goes in full throttle. Yeah, and and I appreciate that, man. I, and and it's good to see that he's like that. Yeah. So John brought up the fact that um, I think in, in that conversation we talked about how he had been to the observatory. And he's like, uh, well, it's been closed because uh, I think there were like protests against. They want to build a new observatory in Hawaii. I'm not sure if they've started already. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you remember, and and scientists were really shocked at the fact that people were like, hey, like, what the hell are you doing? They were protesting against it. Yeah. On one hand, I see the scientific perspective in that it, this observatory is going to get us closer to the truth of the universe, the fundamental yeah. truths of how, how things work in the universe. But on the other hand, I see the cultural perspective where you're like, why people have come to this country? They've yeah, taken exactly. over. They've done everything they want. And now this, this mountain that we revere as... I'm not sure what their beliefs are, but they revere this mountain and only the king could go to up to that mountain. Now you just want to shit all over that? Yeah. Yeah, I see that point. It's where um, science kind of com comes into conflict with culture, in a sense. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I think you do have to respect culture. But like you said, like scientific discovery is valuable in itself. Mm. And that's how we progress as a society. So it's a tough one. I guess you kind of have to try and build these things in with respect of the culture in mind and yeah. try and work out try and mitigate some of those fears of people and things like that fear but also they feel like it's disrespectful yeah you know and this is you're right there's there's great value in scientific pursuits and, and knowledge but we have to ask ourselves and step back and say at what cost yeah indeed you know uh, that we can go into you can say that about eugenics as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's make super babies yeah but at what cost yeah, an interesting, actually, a little side tangent that um, a new movie just came out about uh, genetic engineering and GMOs. And um, and I know John talked a lot about agriculture as well. And they were talking about the papaya in Hawaii and how they were suffering from a, a disease. And so they had a genetic engineering solution. I think it was a virus. And it totally, like, the Hawaiian um, um, agriculture industry was really heavily reliant on papaya crops yeah it's a huge part of their um ec ec economy and um <clears throat> so they had this genetic engineering solution and they got it working and they got rid of the virus and now they have these papaya that don't suffer from this virus but 
um, activist groups tried to stop any genetic engineering happening in Hawaii. Yeah, they tried to like kind of shut it down and say there can't be any genetically engineered foods in Hawaii, except for the papaya. Yeah, so, so they had to make that one exception you know what i mean what? like genetic engineered foods are terrible they're gonna mess you up they're gonna give you cancer we can't have any in hawaii we have to keep it pristine oh, except you know the papaya because like that's crucial for our economy like totally negates their argument i heard i heard that love was being discussed as recently i was that's listening true. to neil degrasse tyson's podcast because i think he was one of the narrators on it yeah i haven't seen it yet it's uh, it should be an interesting movie food evolution food it's called can you also you, you while we were um, driving today um, you mentioned something about cotton and India and GMO. oh well, I heard this actually on the same podcast okay. and I believe it, it was uh, it was on Star Talk Radio so that's Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast and he was in interviewing the producer for this movie it's only just been released I think it's, there's a few showings in the US at the moment called Food Evolution and another thing they were saying is you know, in Bangladesh um, when they developed the BT cotton uh they actually made the BT cotton, like they, they kind of gave it to the Bangladeshi farmers because like they needed it. It was almost charity. Like they, they didn't like charge them for it. Well, wait, yeah. what's this Monsanto? I, I look, to be honest, I don't know if it was Monsanto who was responsible for creating the BT cotton in there. Could it could have been another engineering company, probably but, poisoning. but basically they did it non-profit. Like they're it was charity, right? Poisoning the wells and killing yeah. children while they're doing this. <laughs> it's just a, a world depopulation kind That's of, it. yeah. They, they want you to eat the cotton. So you die. Yeah. But it's interesting because they were using this BT um, pesticide right which is actually an organic pesticide yeah it's an organic protein it's a natural product and when when it gets used traditionally it just gets kind of put on the crops on the surface of the crops so that means they have to use way more of it because it can wash away and things mm. like this it also means the bugs it's not as effective because the bugs can get inside the crops and eat them out from the inside ah. so it's kind of like it costs these poor Bangladeshi farmers lots of money to keep buying this pesticide and it doesn't really work as effectively so what they do is they put the pesticide in the plant so the pe plant makes its own pesticide and then it kills the kills the bugs even if they eat it and even if they get inside it doesn't wash away they don't have to use as much of it it's cheaper that's a really good payoff for people that's that's really cool and that's stuff you don't hear in the in the conspiracy theory forums. Yeah. Well, it touches on ways. like a, a lot of these technologies, and I don't know if that one specifically came out of the Green Revolution, but a lot of those types of technologies came out of the Green Revolution. It really mm -hmm. transformed the way that we produce food and transformed the agriculture industry. And because of that, a lot of people get fed today. And yeah. I think uh, John touched on that as well a little bit, That's the right. importance of the Green Revolution and, yeah, yeah. and how it revolutionized agriculture. And, and uh, this Norman Borlaug, who was kind of the lead, lead guy in the Green Revolution, I think he won a Nobel... Nobel Peace Prize, maybe, yeah. um, and uh, like a common like little uh, thing you'll hear about him is he's the man who who saved a billion people's lives, you know, and and basically they're, they're saying the technologies that came out of that fed so many people that would have mm. otherwise starved to death, that you know it's it's really special. So you, I find agriculture and food science really interesting because it, it's almost like our population keeps growing. And we need to always keep reinventing food. We always need food technology. We always yeah. need to get better yields because we have a limited amount of space. Yeah? Population yeah. doesn't scale the same way as agriculture does. Yeah, because yeah, exp exponential... Population again, yeah. will expand exponentially, yeah. but our, our, we only have a finite amount of space. That's so right. how, do we, how do we address that imbalance? The way you address that imbalance is by... Quantum getting, agriculture. Getting better. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, well, you've got to get these better technologies, you know. You've got to keep reinventing the wheel, to say. Yeah? You've got to keep refining the way you produce food and how much quantity you get, where you can grow it. Have to, and it takes lots of solutions, right? Like genetic engineering isn't a be-all and end-all. It's not going to solve everybody's problems. But it's one solution in a whole lot of solutions. And, and we need everything we can. Hmm. Well, that was a, a, a good little rant you went on, and I yeah. agree with you. And I'm I think, tired now. I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> you should stretch. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. Shall um, we do the usual like plug for tell people to rate us on Facebook? Five stars out of five, please. Yeah, please do. Uh, and also rate us on iTunes. Uh, say hello to us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, what else? What else? Well, we're sitting here with David. You want to say goodbye hey, to everyone, David? David, you want to say goodbye? Oh, no, he just dropped a finger. You may got to yell out really loud and say goodbye to so others. They won't hear you. Goodbye. No, no, really loud. Here, I'll give you the mic. Hold up. Here we go. Here, here, here you go. Both of them. Both of them. Oh, no. Because yeah. no, no. you're going to clip. You're going to clip. You clip. Bye. And we told it. We told him he'd clip it, so yeah. he did it on purpose. Well, yeah. What a bastard! <laughs> and that's why we don't have him on the podcast. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. We love David. Um, next week, we don't know who we're going to have on. So just listen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's bound to be interesting, guys. But thank you for listening. We do appreciate everyone uh, listening to us and giving us such positive reviews and, and feedback. Uh, so. Uh, zero. David's threatening to give us a zero, so yeah. you have to go and you have to go and you have to go and like rate us five to negate his zero. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, let's stop yattering on. All right. Sign off. See you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Blab Codes. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabquotes at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.